Hello, everybody. This is Daryl Rowland, the senior editor of the Columbus Dispatch. And uh, hey, we're inviting you to come celebrate with us. Uh, it is the 150th anniversary of the Dispatch's founding as Ohio's greatest home newspaper. We are looking back at some of the, the greatest hits, if you will, over the years. Don't have anyone that quite goes back the full 150, but uh, we have a, a really cool lineup here for you today. So today's uh, podcast is going to focus on public affairs, which is state government and politics, and not that there's been any news in that um, in the years past or recent years, but our newsroom throughout almost in our entirety of our history has been right across the street from the state house, from the state capitol here in downtown Columbus. So guess what? That's been a major part of our news coverage, politics, government, what you see out in the open, and what's hidden uh, behind some closed doors. Like I say, really great panel. We have Lee Leonard, who started out United Press International, then came to the dispatch, covered the legislature for years. We have Randy Ludlow, started uh, his career in Indiana, worked for the Cincinnati Post at the State House. We persuaded him to come to Greener Pastures. Something about that post going away maybe has something to do with that. Uh, so he joined the dispatch and then later became part of our State House team. And then, uh, Catherine Kandiski, who as far as public affairs, I think uh, just about tops us all, or she and Lee are the true veterans. So um, I am curious. I don't think we're going to get to 150, but just with years of experience of we four, I'm, I'm curious to see what we come up to. So I'm just going to have everyone kind of just introduce themselves and how long uh, you, you were doing this business. So the, the other three are retired. Uh, me, Daryl, I'm for some reason, I'm still masochistic enough to still be doing this uh Still be doing God's work here in the capital city. So Lee Leonard started out with uh, UPI, or was there something even before that, Lee? Fill us in. Well, I I started out with UPI actually in Boise, Idaho, and then uh, that was just a summer job. But I also uh, covered the capital in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So I started in 69, and I retired in, I don't know, 2000 five or six, and uh, I had 15 years with the dispatch, but I had, uh, I don't know, 32 years with the UPI, I think, something like that. And I'm going to pass it on here, and then I'll talk a little bit more about coming to to the dispatch. I came in 1990, the end of 1990, because Dick Celeste was just going out, and George Weinovich was just coming in. Okay. Well, great. We will come right back to you. Randy Ludlow, tell us about the, you know, the good Hoosier roots here. Uh, <laughs> we, yes, we got the foreigner in here. So, Well, I'm an Indianapolis native, so uh, ended up in Indiana. No offense to OSU fans. Obviously, we're no threat in football, at least. Um, went to uh, Cincinnati Post in 1982, spent nine years in Cincinnati, then came up here in uh, 1992, as a, our state house guy, so I did that for ten years. Uh, then I joined the dispatch, uh, where I worked for nineteen years until uh, retiring this past April. So I've been around uh, State House Square for three decades. All right, fantastic. And that's Randy Ludlow, Kathy Kandiski. I think uh, we have a dispatch lifer here, the the only one. Pretty much, pretty much. I actually started at the dispatch when I was still in college, working as a part timer on the sports desk. I don't know if those of you that may have gone to OSU Journalism School might recall Dr. Clark, who was a, a real 
real uh, memorable professor there that, that got a lot of us our start with part-time jobs at the dispatch. I think when I started working on the sports desk, it was me and Rob Aller, who Rob is still a columnist today. But that was after I graduated, I spent a year in Marion and then came back to the dispatch in 1985 and worked there until I took a buyout almost a year ago. All right. Again, I'm Daryl Rowland. I'm currently senior editor. They had to give me a title that matched my hair color. For uh, about 21 years, I was public affairs editor. Um, that that position has not been around all that long at the dispatch. That is the, the longest that anyone has served. But uh, I, I came on the shoulders of some some really great uh, predecessors. And uh, Dwayne St. Clair for a few years um, had many management positions at the dispatch, wound up uh, as public affairs editor. Before him, Mike Curtin. Many of you um, old-timers, not so old-timers, will recognize that name. Uh, a lot of us credit Mike with, uh, you know, he didn't just stay public affairs editor. He made something of himself. He became managing editor, then editor of the dispatch, associate publisher, president. Um, I, I think I've run out of the titles. Uh, and then he was actually uh, went over to the dark side and served a couple of terms in the state legislature. So Mike knew all the angles. He did that before. Uh, so amazing predecessors. And then going way back, uh, Gene Jordan, whom I never met. Kathy, did you ever know Gene Jordan? No. Ferris? So he was gone. So that is reaching back into the history. So I well, did. Okay. I did. Well, we did. <laughs> well, we, we're segueing back to you. Um, number, number one, yeah, tell us, uh, I think it was kind of interesting how you did come to the dispatch, because I think that does involve Mr. Curtin. And then segue from that, um, if you have especially and a special memorable character or event um, from your long career uh, as we sort of sit around the campfire here. And uh, again, thanks to all you who are out there listening. I think you're in for a treat here. So, Lee, how'd you get to this, uh, this crazy thing called the dispatch? Well, I came over because United Press International went bankrupt. And uh, I had two kids in college at the same time. And uh, I think my pay was cut by at least one third. And so I started looking around and uh, I remember courting or the Dayton Daily News with possibility and the Beacon Journal and uh, and the Dispatch. And uh, at the Beacon Journal, there was a guy named Paul Poorman. And I had known him in Harrisburg because he was an editor there. And uh, so I talked to him and he said, he gave me some advice. He said, look, if you were a national reporter, where would you like to go? And, of course, the answer was Washington. And he said, well, it sort of makes sense if you would go to Columbus uh, to their paper. And uh, so that's what I ended up doing. And it was always fun to be in that building, which we aren't in there anymore, but you could look out on the state house and then <laughs> I had people tell me that when I ran across the street you, you know you were going in the middle of a block and cars were coming and you were supposed to go in a crosswalk but the some of those senators which, who were in the annex they I, they would say I look out my window and I see you running across the street coming over here to cover us so that was that was kind of fun and we had a lot of Different rooms in the in the dispatch building went. Uh, I had, I wasn't there that long, but we shifted from one room to another. Uh, and at that time, you could go down because the printing presses were down there, and you could see that going on. Anyway, 
let somebody else give their version. Well, Lee, I am curious about that era because I, I was in this building, but I did not work here. And, I'm, you know, Kathy goes back that far, too. The folks don't yeah. remember. Again, the, the, we were talking about the, uh, well, what is us, the original dispatch building on at 34 South 3rd Street, um, just, right. again, across the street from the State House. Um, you know, back in the day, there was like a bridge over the alley behind us and an entirely separate building. Uh, where the printing presses were. And uh, I'm told the building shook when the presses ran, and uh, it was quite colorful at the time. And also during in the building, I think uh, it wasn't just the dispatch at the time. There was the Associated Press and the Coma Citizen Journal. Am Correct. I, yeah, everybody. And the Scripps Howard Bureau was also back really? in the dispatch building on the first floor. I did not know I that. used to come up here up in, in the 80s uh, occasionally to cover the legislature and other events, so... Okay. And the, the CJ was the afternoon paper, and the dispatch was the morning paper, so we kind of worked opposite shifts. And they were, even though it was a, I think it was the joint ownership agreement that, you know, struggling newspapers had at the time, but they were still very much competitors, as I recall. Right, competitors in the newsroom, for sure. All right. I was going to, Scripps Howard was over at 62 East Broad Street, because that's where UPI was. They shared a joint office with UPI, and... Uh, there was a wall with a hole in it. Well, it was a square hole. Somebody had cut this hole. Haskell <laughs> Short, who was the chief for Scripps Howard, could reach over and grab UPI copy. And uh, they served three uh, or four of the big papers, like uh, the Cincinnati Post and the Cleveland Press and uh, a couple of others. And uh, Haskell would grab copy from UPI and and make it his own. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I I'm not sure that they were in the dispatch building. If, if they were, it was before I came here. And the funny part of it is that the dispatch now is in that same building where I grew up here, and I've, I've been to visit them. And, of course, the building has all changed inside. But, well, Randy knows what it's like there. Much improved for those days. Yes. Well, Lee, you uh, you covered people uh, for whom buildings are named in this town, uh, Rife, Rhodes, and many others, um, as well as uh, you know, just just a whole lot of history. So for, you know, from all that pile, and you know, you sit around and reminisce. I mean, what what of people and things you covered? Uh, is there anything that sort of comes to the fore of uh, 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 you know of your memories of of all those years? Well, tearing down the Neal House and then building on the street corner, the Vern Rife building, uh, and I think it was in the middle of winter, uh, maybe even around the 1st of January of whatever year it was, there was a vacant lot there, and uh, some officials got out there and had a press conference and said it was going to be named the Vern Rife Paul Gilmore building, and later on, Gilmore said, I don't want my name on there. So that's why it became the Vern Rice office tower. So this is at High and State. Yeah, High and State Street. And again, for the, you know, for the, perhaps the, the younger folks, Vern Rife was a legendary longtime speaker. Um, Paul Gilmore was, uh, he must have been Senate president at the time, right? The representative from right. uh, Old Fort, I believe, up in the Tiffin area. Right. And Vern was from uh, Portsmouth area down south. And uh, 
you knew that he was the guy because even when you drove around there, there were streets named after him. He 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 got things done down there for the people. Burns certainly was a political powerhouse. Uh, it was always fascinating to go to his Christmas parties out at the Aladdin Shrine Temple and, and see all the lobbyists and supplicants line up to kiss the ring, as it were. And, of course, he raked in as much campaign cash as he could at those events for his caucus. And uh, Vern was quite the uh, political power broker and uh, doesn't hesitate to uh, wield that power. And as a conservative Democrat, he meshed with a lot of the uh, uh, Republicans. So uh, it was an interesting uh, time. Right. Birthday parties, wasn't it? Not Christmas parties? Did I say Christmas? I meant birthday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the Vern Rice birthday party. That's right. How many did you go to, Lee? I don't remember, but I. They were out there at that place that Randy mentioned, but they also they moved to a different place. Now I'm not thinking of where it was. Anyway, he he had he had big crowds there, and they they provided a lot of money, and there was a lot of joking around about uh, before it happened, uh, not before it happened, but. When they were getting ready to have one of these things, the lobbyists would be talking with each other about, well, when are you going to go? Or when are you going to be there? And so on. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was quite a quite a thing. You didn't want to be left out or else your cause may be left right. out, right? And of course, in yeah, those days, well, like there that. were no campaign uh, contribution limits. So you could bring a check as uh, however large you wanted to. Yeah, and Randy w- was right when he said that you had to be there to kiss the ring. If, if he didn't see you there uh, and you were a lobbyist, you'd hear about it afterwards. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very nice. Tell us, I, I know you covered uh, uh, Jim Rhodes. Uh, what are your memories of, uh, of Jim Rhodes? What, what kind of person was he? And, and, you know, and especially that dynamic of uh, another Southern Ohio boy and he, uh, the Republican from, well, grew up in Southern Ohio, then, of course, moved to Columbus, became state auditor and then governor. What his working relationship with Byrne Rife? Well, the two of them, now I'm not thinking of a name that they had for the two of them, but it it showed how common they were with each other. And, uh, and they worked with each other. And even though they were of opposite political parties, uh, and... I don't think that would work today, the way politics is going. But uh, they were both country boys, and they both were, were wise. They knew how to get things done. They knew how to work with each other. And uh, they, uh, they any project that they had, uh, one would scratch the other's back. And uh, they, uh, and, and Rhodes was... Uh, you asked what he was like. He he certainly knew how to foil reporters if he wanted to. Uh, we, we chased him around all the time, and uh, he would duck in and out and go in a direction that. And he was he he'd be absent. Uh, he, he firstly one. Uh, uh, during one period, he'd put out a flurry of press releases and day after day after day, and then there'd be a period of two or three weeks when you'd never hear anything from him. He, he just, he knew how to, 
to get the job done. Well, and you raised a good point, Lee, that there was just a lot more camaraderie and a lot more cooperation back then, even when the Speaker and the Senate President were of you know opposing parties. Um, right. Whereas today, you know, you're out to make sure your you know your opponent loses. Then it almost seemed like everybody got a win in some shape, like everybody got a little something, um, and the the you just didn't see any of the hyper partisanship you see today. Well, one good example of that is when Vern was the speaker and Corwin Nixon, who was from Lebanon, Ohio, down near Cincinnati, uh, he was the Senate Republican leader, and he was an older guy too, and he knew his way around, and the two of them would cooperate. Vern would give Corwin some things, not a lot, but some things, enough for Corwin to say, hey, I'm getting some things done. And certain people on his side would be favored, or Vern wouldn't run somebody against them in the election. And uh, so they knew how to treat each other. And today, it's just get out there and whack each other. It's a slugfest, so, yeah. 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 It sounds like it's all or nothing. Well, Randy, over the years, you've had a, a role in exposing a lot of the shenanigans going on uh, in this state house uh, behind the scenes. Uh, who or what stands out to you? Oh, there, there's been so many stories over the year. Uh, legislators and others typically uh, have no problems occasionally uh, stepping afoul of uh, state regulations and laws. Uh, Goes back to things such as the uh, the pancaking scandal in the '90s when uh, the aforementioned Vern Reif and then Senate President Stan Aronoff were were stacking speaking fees on top of one another in violation of limits. Uh, and well, Columbus's Gene Watts, don't forget. Right, and yeah. Vern and Stan <laughs> both ended up pleading guilty to misdemeanors. Right. Uh, let's hang on. Let's for the you know, Let's not go so fast. Pancaking. Okay, so. There were these were called honorariums. In other words, you got a speaking fee if you were a legislator, and you know, and I'm I'm running the X Y Z club. I invite you in. Um, first, it was unlimited, and you know, it quickly became abused and another way of back channel campaign contributions that weren't recorded. Well, then reforms came to Ohio, and there were limits put on them. Of what was the limit? Does who recalls? I don't remember the limit, but I think the issue for the, the folks that got in trouble was the fact that they failed to report the honorary. The honorarium themselves were not illegal, but they didn't report it as personal income. It was not considered a campaign donation. It was considered personal income, which had to be disclosed on their annual disclosures. Right. And I think it was $500. That, that does sound right. So, okay. That was the limit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that was per year. Well, okay. So, um, some so, you know, so... They would stack these on top of each other like pancakes to get around the limit. So there were a lot of, I don't know if it was 500 or 499 or whatever, but suddenly we had, you know, all these stacked on top of each other. Again, like a plate of pancakes. And yeah, that not only violated the spirit, but uh, the actual law. So uh, this was back in the 90s. And again, it's, with so many things that we, we saw through the years, uh, you wind up with ethics violations. Uh, we saw this with. Governor Bob Taft, who, um, as far as we know, is the only governor charged with a criminal charge uh, and, and found guilty of that charge. It was an ethics charge for not reporting, in this case, golf outings and a couple other favors from Tom Noe, uh, Toledo uh, Republican uh, coin dealer, campaign donor, and uh, influential who served uh, uh, 
oh shoot, between 10 to 15 years in prison and uh, recently was free. So Randy, back to you. I, that's, that's the problem. You get uh, a lot of veteran uh, journalists around. Uh, folks, you better hang on because this roller coaster is going to go who knows where. Back well, to Randy, there's though. so many. And when I remember well, since uh, I was fortunate enough to break several stories on it, uh, Trooper Gate back on the watch of uh, Ted Strickland, Ohio's only Democratic governor in the last three decades, uh, when State Patrol learned of a plan by a person who is going to throw drugs over the fence at the rear of the property so inmate honor inmates who were working at the governor's residence could pick them up and then seemingly convey them into prison. Uh, they were set up to catch this guy throwing the drugs over the wall, but it was scuttled uh, at the last minute. Uh, some conjecture whether it was actually the patrol superintendent or the public safety director, uh, but that came quite a scandal. And then we uh, we continued to dug, dig into that. We found then public safety director uh, uh, Guzman was uh, not enforcing laws regarding uh, immigrants uh, obtaining license plates through so-called runners who were actually the front for getting the plates, uh, was ignoring his own investigators. This is, this is a violation of law. We need to crack down on it. So uh, ultimately, uh, Guzman left. Um, uh, Kathy Collins-Taylor, who was the, super, or the public safety director, they had overlooked getting her confirmed by the Senate. So then the Senate refused to confirm her. That was when it was in Democratic hands. And so that ended up uh, being a lot of fun. And I never saw a state agency at the time go to such lengths uh, to try to discredit uh, reporting that indeed was later confirmed by, by the inspector general. It was, uh, one, one of their lawyers ended up getting convicted of a misdemeanor for illegally intercepting emails from the dispatch and the inspector general to anybody in public safety like we'd be stupid enough to communicate via email with confidential sources, right? So that was fun as well. And then recently we go the DAS contracting scandal when essentially they're it's bid rigging is what it amounts to. They were routing overpriced contracts to their friends at the Department of Administrative Services. Uh, they put a lot of new uh, teeth to help prevent that situation, but we eventually got that cleaned up as well. And uh, you got to tell the Joe the Plumber story. Oh, that's a people. That's a person. Some. <laughs> I forgot about Joe Folks may remember, uh, Joe the Plumber achieved some fame uh, on the campaign trail in 2008 uh, by uh, coming out for John McCain. Uh, that didn't sit too well with some Democrats in Columbus. Right. Well, Helen Jones Kelly was in director of the Department of uh, Human Services. Uh, I don't recall if it's Job Family Services then. I think there was a different name. <clears throat> But anyway, it turns out she ordered a check on uh, Joseph Wurzelbacher, Joe the plumber, to see if he's behind on child support or had any other problems. And, of course, that was improper. You can't just go digging into people's confidential records based on something like that. But uh, she ultimately uh, was suspended and removed as well. For uh, And they also found they were spying on other people, like uh, one winner on... Uh, American Idol, Crystal Bowersock, I think, out of Toledo. They were also digging illegally into her background. So, <laughs> must be those Toledo area folks <laughs> winning money. <laughs> Catherine, uh, again, the, the, the dispatch life, or you came to public affairs in 90. 
two? Ninety. Oh God, I gotta remember. Eighty-five. The public affairs. Okay. Oh, public affairs. Ninety-three. Ninety-three. Yeah, okay. sorry. Gotcha. Right. right as Curtin was right at the tail end of Curtin's tenure. Okay. Well, who or what do you remember most from uh, your time? Well, I guess kind of piggybacking on Randy's honorariums um, scandal, it seems like every so often we were covering these pay-to-play type situations where there was some kind of contract steering or or um, questionable contributions from lobbyists or behavior like that. I mean, starting with the honorarium scandal, but then the one that really sticks out in my mind was the Ohio School Facilities um, case we, we covered, which was when Ohio had just gotten this, the the Supreme Court had just ruled the Ohio system of education unconstitutional, and Ohio embarked on a massive school building program. And that was using money, as I recall, from the the settlement with all the tobacco companies in the day. You have a better recollection than I. You're, I think that's right. Okay. <laughs> But we, we heard that contracts, we started getting complaints from people trying to get the work, contractors, um, trying to get the school building and renovation work, that contracts were being steered. So we went and looked at, we actually set up offices, and about four of us reporters, uh, myself, John Craig, Alan Johnson, and Katie Waters, who was at the time an intern, is now the business editor here at the Dispatch. Yes, that's now Katie Smith. Yes, Katie now, Smith, now business that's editor right. and also editor of Columbus CEO. So, yeah, interns do sometimes pull full, full. I'm sorry, go full circle and come back. Exactly. I mean, and so we went through records and records and records and found that that in many cases um, specifications were written so narrowly that only one company would qualify, or there was no competitive bidding at all. Um, and we, I don't believe we were ever, ever able to quantify how much money was lost, but but in the end, this was a, a huge loss to taxpayers. And that seemed to be a theme that we kept coming back to repeatedly. Randy mentioned DAS. I mean, it, repeatedly. Um, in more recent years, it seemed to be um, the same type of issue we'd run in with health care. Um, we covered stuff with the BWC paying ex- extraordinary rates for um, injured workers' health care. Um, then we had the prison system paying really high rates to hospitals for prisoners' health care. And most recently, we, we've been covering how the uh, pharmacy benefit managers, the pharmacy middlemen, are making a killing off of Ohio taxpayers as well. So it seems like those are the stories that stuck with me a lot um, because it was it, it, taxpayers were getting screwed, basically, and they continue to get you know, and I, I love when we can expose stuff like that, and hopefully, and in, in many cases, get things changed. You know, and, and that's the goal. A lot of us, you know, it, you know, people say, "Oh, yeah, we're, we're an era of, you know, the press being the enemy, the people." Some would have, and, and others talk about our bias. It's like, okay, none of us is perfect. Um, we all have our, you know, ash, natural preinclinations or what have you. But uh, you know, what you put in the paper or online, you know, you want to be as neutral as possible. And if we're biased, it is biased toward helping readers cope, saving dollars, understand laws, know about candidates, things of that nature. I mean, that is why we have press included in the First Amendment in this country. It's not just to protect, a, a you know, yet another industry that makes widgets or whatever. Biased against cheaters. I Yeah. Basically. I, I, you know, I... Guilty is charged on that. But I forgot to mention one that actually was maybe the greatest hit of all time, which was the ECOT scandal, the Electronic Classroom of Tomorrow and Bill Lager. And 
And Bill Locker op- opened up, he was a failed businessman here from Columbus, but he opened up a um, online charter school, the Electronic Classroom of Ohio, and over about a 10-year period collected more than a billion dollars in state funding. Um, during that time, he gave about several million dollars in, in contributions to candidates the state in the state office, uh, state elected officials, rather. Um, and nobody really, they all kind of turned it back. There was questions almost from the start about whether his attendance records were accurate because you got paid based on how many students were attending your school and the accusations against him that were, you know, came up within the first year of his school opening were that he was inflating those numbers and collecting a lot more money than he should have. And we were able to expose that and also write about how he amassed a personal fortune, um, including like four or five homes that he bought, uh, one in Key West, Florida, and how he hid money in, you know, overseas and in other places where it couldn't get touched um, over the years. And no one seemed to care. And you have to wonder why. Well, I think, you know, you look at where the follow the money is one thing we like to say a lot. If you follow the money, a lot of politicians were benefiting from Bill Lager as well. Right on ECOT, we have to give a salute to the late Greg Jim Siegel for the role he also played in uh, Definitely. covering that. Uh, Jim, uh, epic legislative reporter, uh, knew school funding better than I would say 95% of legislators. So here's to Jim. At least, yes. Again, in case you don't know, um, we have Lee Leonard on here, certainly a legend in covering uh, state government at the legislature. When Lee retired, they called him up to the, the speaker's rostrum and, and honored him. Um, uh, Lee actually recommended uh, this guy I'd never heard of named Jim Siegel. It was at the time working uh, uh, um, in the Scripps Howard Bureau, I think. Gannett. I'm sorry. Yeah, we were at Gannett then, in the Gannett Bureau. Uh, Not for Cincinnati, but some of the smaller papers. And he said, take a look. And I looked at his clips. He looked good. He came on and... We had a legend replace a legend. I mean, I've, I've been so... my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I tell you, and I just feel, I, I'm just so blessed as an editor to to work with such amazing people like you all, like Jim. We lost Jim in uh, June of 2019 uh, at 46 uh, years old. Uh, the, Left the wife and uh, two kids, uh, both in high school at the time. One's in college now, and one's a senior. Uh, we remember Jim dearly, and we we all miss him every day. There's a there's a hole in our hearts, and there's frankly a hole in in Ohio journalism because uh, he's not there. Uh, and there's a whole lot of people we work with over the years. We just we just had the mics today. Um, if you, if you're listening to this from mid November on, um, you can get online and, and look at a story that. Uh, that right now is just in my computer. It hasn't been published yet. But I'm going to do this uh, real fast because I know you've been really tolerant. Uh, if you're driving, I hope you had a long trip. If you're walking or running, you know, thanks for hanging with us. Well, I'm just going to run down through this because we could talk for hours, but, uh, you know, we're going to respect your time. So um, one of the most notable accomplishments of, of public affairs uh, came when James Nash and Alan Johnson heard about from these two women in the attorney general's office who complained about sexual harassment. Uh, they started pulling at that string, and boy, did the office of Mark Dan unravel very quickly. It came from our first story to the resignation, and I will say forced resignation, of Mark Dan, again, the Democratic attorney general elected in 2006. This was in May of 2008. Uh, it was like five weeks in between, just 
I mean, that's light speed for anything happening in state government, much less. Um, it's thought to be the only uh, statewide administrative office holder who, had, who was forced out of office in, in midterm in Ohio history. Now, again, as some of you historians out there say, well, back in 1845, okay, email me and uh, we'll, I'll amend my comments. Yeah, Sutter's will email you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, one of the stories that um, I feel good about uh, before I became an editor is uh, I covered that job in family services through welfare reform and all that. And it seems like in state government, whenever they install a big new computer system, there's always problems. And that's part of what Randy talked about at the Department of Administrative Services. You know, some of the things Kathy talked about, some of this tracking the ECOT money. Uh, the state just wasn't equipped to do that. Um, child support. Uh, there were these group, uh, this group of uh, single moms, a uh, group called ACES. I don't even know if it's still around anymore. Uh, we're not getting child support dollars. And, you know, you hear complaints all the time from people as journalists. Uh, we looked into that, and guess what? They were right. It turns out the state withheld almost $40 million in child support from these poor single moms. Single parents, but almost all single moms. Uh, after our stories, the state made that right and got the money back to the people. Um, the stories into the pharmacy benefit managers that, that Kathy um, talked about, which continues to this day, um, Marty Schleiden, uh, and Kathy Kandisky started that ball rolling by meeting with the head of the Ohio Pharmacists Association. Again, walked in the office, laid out this whole scenario. They told me what they were meeting with him about. It's like, really? That just sounds so murky that even if it's true, I'm not sure we can explain it to people. Uh, there have been so many changes now. Uh, frankly, laws throughout the country have been changed because of the work of the Columbus Dispatch. Our stories have literally been held up on the floor of the U.S. Senate. They've been cited in U.S. Supreme Court cases that have changed uh, case law that allows uh, enforcement actions against the PBM. And just a couple of weeks ago, the current Medicaid director, Maureen Corcoran, uh, testified before the legislature, a legislative committee, that uh, because of the, all these reforms are implemented after the dispatch, that the state has saved hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, that's not bad. Um, Perhaps an even more significant accomplishment was, was attained by Alan Johnson. Again, by listening to people. In this case, uh, stories about a couple of guys who'd been in prison for like a quarter of a century for an armed robbery and murder. That we started looking into that case. Alan took the lead on this. There were holes in this case. And again, we hear more and more of this, but Alan was pioneering this, um, you know, at least 15 years ago. Long story short, he does a series of stories. These um, Gary James and Tim Howard get hearings on their case. The charges are dismissed. They are found innocent and wind up, of course, suing the state. And it was the largest settlement at the time ever paid out. Uh, so again, freeing two men uh, wrongfully convicted of murder and armed robbery. Uh, put that on Alan Johnson's uh, pedestal. Um, Alan was one of our most prescient reporters um, way back in the uh, early 2000s. It was these, one of these routine reports he was going over, uh, just toting up the number of deaths, number of fatalities from the previous year. And Alan says, huh, I never noticed this. The number of uh, deaths from drug overdoses is actually more than uh, the traffic fatalities in that state. Now, you say that today, and it's like, no, duh. Back then, it was like, really? What's happening in this state? 
we started looking into it and, you know, they, they, Alan did some of the first stories in the opioid crisis. And Kathy had a piece of that as well, as I mm-hmm. recall. Uh, and about just the devastation that that wrought, uh, particularly on southern Ohio, but there's no corner of the state that went unscathed uh, from that. Um, you know, Lee, uh, Lee was a veteran reporter, and it, it takes someone like that to notice when things happen. Uh, we have our, our most recent scandal, again, which, which Randy covered a piece of, um, uh, Mark Kovac, Anna Staver covered pieces of uh, the current House Bill 6, the, the nuclear bailout, in which a uh, federal prosecutor calls the biggest scandal in Ohio history, at least Ohio government history, uh, involves a former Speaker Larry Householder, former Republican Chairman Matt Borges, the late Neil Clark, a super lobbyist, a couple others who've already pleaded guilty. Uh, we have all these payouts over bills, um, all involving uh, electricity generation. Well, back back in 2000, Lee Leonard uh, noticed there was bills then to deregulate uh, electricity. And that was a horribly complex topic. As Kathy mentioned, you know, the legislators are, uh, I mean, some of them are so stupid, they're, they're even worse than journalists sometimes. And that's saying a lot. But we, we're just plotters sometimes. But we noticed a committee hearing where the legislators were taking a series of vote in the front of the room. And you notice looking, them looking to the back of the room, and he saw all these lobbyists lined up. And it had come up for a vote. And the lobbyists would nod yes or no or give a wink or a nod. They were literally telling legislators how to vote. Lee was an eyewitness. And now you don't see that because they text. Yeah, now it's, now it's <laughs> uncovered. But, you know, yep. uh, you know, the newbie reporters would not have got caught that. I probably wouldn't have known who the lobbyists were in the back of the room. Lee caught that and it turned that into a, a story about lobbyist influence in the legislature in 2000 or 2001 that actually won a national award. So that was... Uh, you know, that was an amazing catch, I think. Uh, human trafficking, again, back to Alan Johnson catching trends. Alan did some of the first stories, along with Mike Wagner, our old uh, pro- our current projects reporter, on the scourge of human trafficking. Um, back during CoinGate, uh, that was a scan on workers' comp. Mark Niquette, a uh, former government and politics reporter, um, noticed there's actually a bigger scandal, which people, many people don't remember this today. To this day, they talk about Tom Noe, where actually there was uh, a company called MDL Capital out of Pittsburgh that made off with $215 million. I shouldn't say made off. They lost that in terms of investments. Uh, again, that's when Governor Taft was, uh, was found guilty for his ethics violation. The least likely of any governor to really be found gu- gu- involved in criminal conduct, Yeah, and, I uh, have to say. Yeah. Uh, Joe Hallett, our former senior editor, the masterful writer, many of you remember him covering politics. He and Alan, way back in uh, April 2000, again, this is a Bob Taft thing, uh, had a, a thing called Team Ohio. You could join Team Ohio for the small fee of $25,000 or a pledge of 50000 a year. Uh, and guess what? You got to go to Ohio State football games and all these goodies. Uh, we confronted the governor about that. He stopped that. Uh, that's called kind of play to play, some might say. Uh, play to play. Yeah, and it, again, it just goes on and on. We exposed in the 1990s improper campaign contributions, money funneled from the Democratic 
National Committee through Ohio uh, because Ohio had, uh, you know, softer regulations. Uh, Joe Varden covered the governor for us. Uh, he's the one who broke the story from the 2014 campaign. I mean, not that John Kasich wasn't going to win re-election anyhow, but Ed Fitzgerald, anyone remember him running for governor? Yeah. Um, and he, guess what? Joe Varden broke. It was, you know, it wasn't really a scandal. It was just something that was so odd and unusual. I think a lot of voters were saying, what? That he went around Ohio with no driver's license for several years. Ed Fitzgerald's an FBI agent and worked uh, in, uh, in Cuyahoga County and county government. So, again, folks, we, uh, I, I, again, I, I just feel the clock ticking here. We could go on and on. Uh, Kathy talked about, you know, ECOT and the School Facilities Commission. Uh, you name when it. You mentioned, Mike, you mentioned Mike Wagner. He's still doing stories on criminals that were wrongly sentenced. That's right. Alan Johnson started that trend, and I don't know how many. Uh, Mike and Jeff Dutton did it first, and now it's pretty much Mike on his own. What, Randy, you were keeping track of that. We're like six? Yeah, we're like seven people released in cooperation with the uh, Innocence Project of the University of Cincinnati. And most of it involved developments in DNA testing, retesting DNA, and finding, no, these persons did not commit these crimes. Right. And I'm going to leave you with one that's pretty new. And, and again, not uh, Rick Ruan was uh, just with us for maybe a year and a half here most recently. He and uh, who's now with uh, USA Today and Doug Caruso is now with Gannett, which is our parent organization, came together, brought the light about how the improper voter purges were working back in 2000 under the Secretary of State's office. So, folks, you talk about 150 years, we can't hardly get through the last 20 but I think you get a flavor, again, thank you for hanging with us this long, of, of what we're all about as journalists. I hope you, I hope you not only hear our words, but feel our hearts, um, you know, coming at you over these microphones today. This is why we do this stuff. Um, sure ain't for the money. Um, beautiful colleagues, wonderful colleagues, but uh, because they're dedicated to doing right. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, whether you know it or not, it's made a, a positive difference in your life. So... Uh, folks, we need to sign off. Lee, any final words? No, it's been a good discussion. <laughs> All right. Randy Ludlow. Well, thank you. It's uh, certainly was the love of my life to do what I did. And I'm still trying to do it on a part-time basis, but uh, uh, we just would appreciate the uh, public support and continuing to uh, support local journalism at uh, all levels. Catherine Kandisky. Right. Well, like what Randy said, the work continues today. We don't have a public affairs desk, but we have a Gannett State Bureau with lots of good reporters that are doing a lot of the same work, a lot of trying to carry on the torch. And you can support local journalism. That would be great. And uh, we'll be, I'll be explicit since, uh, yeah, my paycheck still depends on this. Unlike these re retirees <laughs> living the life of leisure, please subscribe. You think this stuff we just told you is worth a buck for six months maybe to subscribe? I hope you do. So we're grateful for everything you do for us. Again, we're doing it for you. So we, we really support. We really appreciate any support you give us. So thank you to Patrick Flaherty on the board. You never hear from him, but he makes us sound as good as we possibly can. But he does these podcasts all the time. We call him, yes, the pod father. <laughs> Folks, thanks so much for missing. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks.